I also did not want to go to jail, by the way. <laughs> oh, no surprise. <laughs> Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Tobias, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you very much. Thank you for that I can be here, Sylvan. Thank you. Our pleasure. You're the co-founder and CEO of Yamo, a company which produces healthy and tasty baby food with organic and local ingredients. Before we talk about that fascinating journey, we want to uh, focus on your personal background. You have a background in business administration, marketing, and even before you started Yamo, you were already winning awards for your startup ideas. So has this startup bug been there from, from the beginning, basically since you were a child, or where does that motivation to be an entrepreneur come from? Um, yeah, difficult question. I, I don't know. I don't think I ever had something like a startup bug. I even would go as far as to say uh, when we started Yamo, startup was something that I just recently heard about, like the term. Um, however, I think I'm a person that is difficult to employ and I'm probably more of a person that should be an employer <laughs> um, just because I, I constantly question status quo and I, I might have a bit of an authority problem. So um, I, I think I'm, I'm good where I am. How did you realize that, you know, that you're more the employer instead of the employee? Were there any certain events that led to that conclusion or how did you feel that this was the right fit for you? Um, I mean, I had a very, very interesting experience working corporate before uh, before Yamo. Um, I learned a ton of things, but it always felt as if there's too little that I can actually change and the speed was never fast enough for me. So it was just always like, yeah, we need to do another meeting and let's wait for next quarter and let's do that next year. And I always felt like I have probably statistically 84, 85 years to live on that planet and uh, I would like to make the most of it. And um, there, founding a startup was felt like the right thing to do. So it was just frustrating the corporate environment that you were working in before. In yeah, to some degree, I think so. Yes, um, I was just I pro I'm probably not made for it. Got it. And do you also mind sharing some of the early ideas that you had? Where you also won these startup idea competitions? Um, that was one. It was funny. It was a competition back when I was still um, at the University of Applied Sciences uh, in in Lucerne where we had this blackboard in the uh, in the hallway and uh, a colleague of mine he actually told me look there is this competition from Swiss Post they're looking for ideas for new businesses and for every new idea you get a hundred francs and I was like wow a hundred bucks that's that's amazing I, I will send three ideas so I just came up with those ideas and sent them and um, and somehow they liked them I, I can't really recall what it was about I think it was it was about how to uh, create excitement when a customer receives a parcel from the Swiss Post. And I had this idea with gamification so that on every parcel there was, I think, a, something, a clue to a mystery hidden. And then the more parcels you would get, the, the, the mystery would kind of come together. And in the end, I did not win with the idea, <laughs> but, but I got the 300 bucks. <laughs> Done deal, right? Yeah. That's all you needed. <laughs> 
you also grew up in an entrepreneurial family with an SME background. I think your family has like uh, more than 400 employees in the family business. And there, I just wonder, did that also have an impact on your career choice to become an entrepreneur yourself or didn't that affect you at all? Um, yeah, so my grand grandfather, uh, he founded a company in the 1890s, I think, or something. Um, was just a very small company with one, two people. And then over time, this company uh, grew to more than 400 employees, I think. And at some point, the company was sold um, a couple of years ago. And the most of the most of my family from my father's side was to some degree involved in that company. My dad wasn't actually he was I mean, he was in the board, but he was pursuing a totally different career. He was a geolo uh, geologist and uh, has his own company in, in geology consultancy. And um, I don't know, it did not really, I think it did not super influence me because the, the company was not never a big topic at, for example, at the lunch table or anything. I just, the only thing that had, uh, that where I had a touch point was that in summer holidays, in summer break, I, I used to work in the factory on the on the assembly line, putting together screws and stuff, uh, earning, I don't know, I don't know, I think 12 francs an hour or even less maybe. But it was a lot of money for me when I was 14 and uh, and 16. And so that was, and I really liked it. I liked being around other people doing things and in this factory with all the people and the noise with with the, with the machines. That was super cool. It was really exciting. What, what did you do with the money that you earned there as a teenager? Uh, I think I spent it on my first computer. Unfortunately, I would really say, unfortunately, I never taught myself to program. I should have done that. <laughs> um, however, I mean, I was more into into gaming, I would say, and uh, as probably most teenagers. So I, I got the money and I spent it. I built together my own computer. That at least I did. So um, that was cool. But uh, it turned out pretty well, even without the, the coding skills, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't say I have an avid technology uh, understanding. Fair point. But then there was no push from your family side to also get involved any further in the family business or to take over there. No, not at all. Really not. Um, and that was really cool. My parents were always supporting of what I did. They were never pressuring me into anything. And... Um, even actually, I would go as far as to say they, they could have pressured me maybe more some at some point to to show me like, look, that would be possible. But in the end, I'm now very happy how things turned out. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that I was able to go my own way. And yeah, your own way you, you went. In 2016, you co-founded Yamo together with two co-founders. And you actually met one of your co-founders, Luca, in 2015 when you were actually working at the Campari Group. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about the journey, you know, about how you met each other and then how you reached the conclusion that that it's now time to actually leave Campari Group and start your own company? Um, yeah, so I was working at Campari for already, I think, uh, six months or something when, when Luca joined. Um, and from the first day on, I think we really hit it off. Uh, we, we always, we worked together very well and uh, we had similar, uh, similar interests, especially food. And I think that that interest was in the end what brought us to Yamo because we both did not understand why this uh, category would still work as it did or still does to uh, to a um, to major major degree. 
So, um, yeah, that's how we, we landed where we are. But I mean, going from booze to the baby food market, that's <laughs> quite a journey, right? So how did that happen? Did you just, you know, go into a supermarket and saw baby food and thought, that's it, that's what we're going to work on? Or how did that really emerge? Because that's not the first thing that you would think of uh, two guys starting a company together. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I still, today, people would ask me, so why exactly are you as a dude without kids doing this baby and children food company? And uh, I was like, yeah, you know, it is broken. We need to fix it. And um, so how everything happened is that back in, in 2015, late 2015, um, we, we saw this documentary, both Luca and me, actually, that was a coincidence. We saw a documentary about veganism in Swiss television. And then the next day we were talking about it in the office. And oh, you also saw it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we should eat vegan. We should try this. Uh, it's now the new thing, right? And then we decided to have this vegan month, um, ate vegan for a month, which actually was was fine. Um, the only challenge was really that where we had our office, there was just a gas station and a McDonald's to get lunch. So we were at the gas station very often to get like spaghetti bolognese for the microwave or spaghetti carbonara for the microwave, so all those things. And during that vegan month, I had to read all the ingredient lists, of course, to, to figure out what was vegan and what was not. And when I was reading all of these ingredient lists, I just, I saw that most of the things that I daily consumed were rather unhealthy, too much salt, sugar, additives, and uh, I thought, well, um, that's not good. <laughs> what could I actually eat that is healthy but also convenient? And then we thought, like, why, why, why don't we just eat baby food? I mean, it's <laughs> you can just open the glass uh, and uh, there you go, you have something. And uh, we did that. And it was the first time in my life that I actually had a look at the category. And I was in front of that shelf and I saw all those products. And I was like, wow, there's a ton of products. And then the products were, were shelf-stable for three to five years, and I did not understand it. I was like, why? How is this possible? And then I I, um, I called up a long-term friend of mine, Jose. He's, he's, um, he grew up very close to me. He uh, He's a food scientist, so he actually knows something about food. Not, not like me, I just like to eat, but he actually knows things. And then I called him, I was like, hey, Jose, you got to help me here what's up with with baby food why is why are those products like they are and he's like yeah you know what this industry has not changed in 50 years they will never change and um and always when somebody tells me like that's not going to happen it does not work like this i'm getting hesitant and like ah oh, it has to and there probably comes in my my incompatibility to work in corporate for a long time so uh, I went back to the office to Luca. I was like, hey, my friend, he told me that this industry has never changed. And uh, why don't we look at it? And we started analyzing the market and we were like, oh, it's quite a big market. It's actually uh, over eight and a half billion euro market in Europe. And then we were like, OK, that's a very huge market. Um, seems to be kind of broken. We started interviewing parents and parents would tell us, you know what, I prepare baby food myself because I don't trust what it's on shelf. And uh, But I don't have time. And that was our initial hypothesis. Okay, people don't have time. They don't really like preparing baby food themselves, but they also don't trust what you can find. So why would there not be something that combines those two needs? Uh, being convenient, but as healthy and fresh as homemade. And that's really when, like, this initial spark. And uh, Jose, he always told us, look, there would be technology that would be 
that would allow us to do the product better. Uh, it's just uh, nobody has tried it so far in Europe. We could try it, and yeah, that's how it evolved. What was that specific technology? I think it had uh, to do with the pasteurization of yeah, the correct. actual product. Yeah, so usually um, baby food is heat sterilized, which means that it is um, heated uh, at uh, 120 degrees Celsius, and uh, by that made shelf-stable. Um, so what what does shelf-stability mean? It means you kill bacteria and bad stuff, basically. And um, and the, 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 I would say the, the good thing about heat is that you really kill everything and the product is, is shelf-stable for a long time. The bad thing is that you also kill vitamins to um, to quite a big amount. So there's 13 vitamins, six of which are heat labile. So all those six, for example, vitamin C suffers big time. Now, um, there is a technology called high pressure pasteurization that works with pressure and not heat. And that's what we in the end ended up using because uh, it is a technology that is, it's not super new. I mean, it's already used since the mid early nineties, but really commercialized or let's say it became cheaper um, or more economical now because uh, there are bigger machines and so and so forth. And uh, yeah, we were the first to, to use the technology in Europe for baby food. It was very adventurous to find out how those things work. Um, but the great thing is that in the end, you have a product that is shelf-stable for, I would say, a couple of weeks, um, but always in any given moment tastes as fresh as homemade. So you open uh, the product and it's just, it tastes really good and, uh, and, and it's safe. I mean, and that's a great thing. And you still have all the good stuff in there that exactly. you want to keep, right? Yeah, exactly. Why didn't the the producers of baby food use that, you know, that pasteurization yeah, before? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, something that we, of course, ask ourselves as well. Like, it's I always tell also to my team, if we are the only ones doing something, we are either super smart or super dumb. <laughs> uh, so and there's just those two things. And um, I think what we... The conclusion when we asked ourselves this question was it would change the whole supply chain of the big companies because the product afterwards needs to be refrigerated. So below eight degrees, it's like a yogurt in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very, very different from shipping and storing uh, ambient products that can be stored for years. Uh, because you produce to stock and we produce to be consumed, more or less. And that is, from from a supply chain point of view, very, very different. And I think that's just not something that the big... Uh, the big incumbents want to go into because it's just it's it would change their whole company basically right that's a huge effort that you would have Absolutely. to put into that yeah. which you actually did but we'll talk about that in a minute yeah i mean the, the good thing is we had the opportunity to build everything on on a on a clean slate right we had no legacy and yeah. that's of course as with every startup that's your big advantage in these early days, when you were actually discovering this this new method or applied this method to the baby food market, to to how to pasteurize the food, how did that work? You know, because you said it was a very adventurous discovery. Basically, <laughs> I can imagine you probably failed a couple times until you got to a level where you said, "Okay, now can, we can actually use and produce this." So, yeah. how did you solve that big issue of bringing this new technology to the baby? baby food market. Yeah, absolutely. So in the beginning, what we did is um, Jose bought this 
this little machine on Amazon. It was called Baby Move. It's like a steamer and blender uh, all in one machine. And he prepared the first prototypes like this. And I remember that the machine broke after two days because he was prototyping like a madman. And then he took those products and he showed it to parents and they were like, oh, this, this tastes well. And then we had, we, we, we thought like, okay, now we have, we basically have the product. So what we did in the beginning was we rented ourselves into uh, those in industry gastronomical big kitchens where Luca Rosa and me, we went to uh, Prodega, bought basically everything that we could find to prepare baby food, got in that, uh, into that kitchen five in the morning or something, started preparing the stuff. At eight, nine in the evening, we had 20 kilos produced or something, which is a ridiculously low amount. And uh, we were really dead after that. And we were like, okay, that's never going to work. And then we we thought like okay we need somebody that produces for us because otherwise we would never we would never do that so that was a really big first iteration I would say where we found out we will not be able to produce ourselves so um, it's I would say it's one of the big learnings it's fail but fail fast we did that and then we we were looking for a producer and then luckily we had a guy that was able to do the high pressure pasteurization but also produce the puree for us and that worked then very well. Uh, but still, it was super adventurous because we did not know if actually our product would work with high pressure. So we, we went to Coop, we bought basically everything that was packaged in a cup and threw it into the HPP machine and look what came out. And that's how we iterated ourselves to, to producing or coming up with the packaging. I was, yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> what kept you going? Because these are huge challenges that you faced, right? You're just just producing 20 kilos in one day you're exhausted at the end you, you think that's never going to scale that's never going to work what kept you going because most people would have probably just given up at that point that's a good question I, it's it, I, I was I, I think we were just so maybe we were in love with the idea but we were also really we, we had done all those interviews right we we talked to all those moms and dads but mostly moms and we just felt the pain that they had they i really remember this one mom she was a teacher and she told me look i'm almost i work almost full time so does my husband and on saturday afternoon i prepare baby food for two weeks in advance so what i do is i'm in the kitchen for four hours blending and uh, and and coming up with those recipes and blending and things and then putting everything into those ice cube trays putting the products in the freezer and then when my baby is hungry I have to kind of be telepathic about it so to know that the baby will be hungry in 30 minutes so I can take it out of the freezer in time and it was really it just felt like people were not happy with what they what they had or with the situation and it's also something I did not understand is why we always we humans we always tend to go for something better something that makes our life easier of course, without losing anything of, of the good stuff. Why did we not do that with baby food? And uh, yeah, and then in the end, we, we it probably was this that kept us going. Like we knew that there was a market. We knew that there were people that wanted uh, wanted to have this problem solved. So we just needed to make it happen somehow. I love that. That's beautiful. <laughs> and despite the high pressure pasteurization that you use this technology, you also had other USPs basically from day one. Can you talk a bit more about what you did differently compared to other companies in the market? Yeah, so I think the, the biggest thing that we really did is um, 
we we sold directly to our customers, which means that we sold everything through our own platform. So in the beginning, of course, we actually we have not even given it a thought to be in retail. We thought like, well, those guys will never work with us anyway. We are too small and and we are too complicated and so on. So um, and we we knew we wanted to understand who our customers are and we want to have a build a relationship with them. So we we launched our own website and that was actually uh, November two thousand seventeen. It's not so long ago actually, right. and when we started it and. Uh, and then we just shipped to people directly at home. Also something people said to, to us, uh, told us in the beginning that will never work. You cannot ship something that is uh, that needs cooling and is uh, impossible. So we had to come up with the whole solution as well there, how we ship and uh, make it as sustainable as possible. And I think we have a very good solution now. So um, that was a big USP as well. Because when you're a mom or a dad and uh, you just... Sometimes you just, I think most of our customers, they actually produce baby food themselves, mm -hmm. but they have Yamo as kind of an addition, um, sometimes maybe even making up for 50 or even more percent of the of the meals of the, of the kit. But there, the home delivery, I think, is a big relief. You just, it's one bother less. It just comes to your door and it's done right. in a subscription. You don't even have to think again. Fantastic. What you also did focus on in the early days was you really sourced from local ingredients, right? So yep. why did you decide to go down that path? Um, it was actually, it was just because it was easier for us in the beginning because okay. it was easier to go. I mean, I remember uh, traveling with Jose to the uh, Bern or Zeeland. Uh, we were everywhere where there were uh, farmers uh, growing, I don't know, uh, carrots and, and, and things and apples and we went there to look at the farms and uh, source the ingredients there. It was just easier for us. We have, we did not think about sourcing it from somewhere else because we're like, well, Switzerland, we have it here. Why don't we just do it? And um, that's, yeah, that's how we started. And um, it was cool because we were able to, to understand or get, understand a lot about the market and how things work. For example, that you can never always have just one supplier because maybe his harvest is bad. And then what do you do? You don't have any True. apples. And uh, yeah, we went through some 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 tough learnings there. <laughs> what are actually some of the ingredients that you put into baby food? So you mentioned carrots and apples. What else goes in the baby, baby food? Because I'm not a parent, yeah. not yet. So I have no clue about what actually goes in there. So in interesting enough is that, uh, for example, in, in Switzerland, it depends on if you grow up in the German or a French-speaking um, part of Switzerland, when you grow up in the French-speaking part, your first baby puree will be a pear puree. And in the German-speaking part, it will be a carrot puree. And that's why we, in the beginning, we had uh, both <laughs> both those those flavors. And uh, so that's very traditional. Then there's, of course, um, sweet potatoes or pumpkin. Then uh, we always wanted to have some sort of more exotic recipes. Uh, that's why we, for example, did a puree with uh, lentils and red beet. That was, uh, I would say, for making it at home, it would be too complicated because you would need to cook up the lentils and uh, and then um, skin the red beets and cook them as well and so on. And in an industry, in an in industrial grade, you can easily do it. Um, and that's something that parents liked a lot, that our recipes were not so common. And you also gave your recipes a fantastic name, right? <laughs> How do you actually call that creation? Do you remember the name for that? Uh, that one was called Beatney Spears. 
<laughs> the, the, with the <laughs> with the red peat. Uh, yeah, our, all of our products. They, I mean, we are ourselves. We are kids from the eighties and nineties, so um, we always wanted to have some sort of a funny touch to the products because the rest of the, I mean, the the, the 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 industry or the category is really serious because it's about baby food and it's you need to do really the best products you can do. So we wanted to still have some sort of a twist for the parents because in the end it's the mom that shops for the product and it's not. We never want to have products that are geared towards children because it's. It, of course, the taste needs to be geared towards children and in, from the nutrition value. But from the outside, it always uh, should look nice and, and also with a bit of a fun twist. That's why we came up with those names, which, by the way, there was not much beer involved when we came up no? with it. No, okay. I'm, I'm surprised now. <laughs> it's still something we do. Uh, today, we still do it in the team. So now we have all those big spreadsheets where when we come up with when we come up with new products, we actually, all of, of Yamo can contribute and add ideas to it. And then we put it to a vote. And in the end, the, the product name that is being favored by the Yamo stars uh, will be put on the on the packaging. A very democratic Swiss approach, yes, so to say. So you talked about your own online shop where you sold directly the subscription, but also your online shop directly to consumers. And you didn't go after the big retailers at first, but then eventually after building on your own channel, you then changed or added them to your strategy. How did you make that decision and why was then the right time to actually go also after big retailers? Yeah, that's, it's... Um we did not actually make the decision. The decision was made for us because when we launched uh, end of 2017, I think it was, it took something like two, three, four weeks when we received the first uh, email uh, from Coop and a call from DM from the drugstore market chain in, in Germany. And they both said, look, this is very interesting what you do. Finally, somebody that challenges the status quo in this uh, industry let's talk. And I really remember the first meeting that we had with Coop. It was a lot of people there. And um, I think for them, it was rather exciting because there were those three young guys coming with this baby food startup. And for us, it was very exciting because we were invited to that uh, huge retailer. Um, and they they asked us, so um, yeah, what is it that you want to do? And we're like, yeah, this, this baby food, we really want to revolutionize the, the whole industry. And this is in our in we believe that in a few years this will be the standard um and we're like okay 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 uh, so uh, how would this work and we're like yeah it, our products are refrigerated you know we need to put fridges in your store and they were like what refrigerated no that's that's, that's a good. huge investment yeah, right and it's not going to work i mean now all of our of our products are not refrigerated and that was uh we're like okay bummer <laughs> but then over the time um we we kept on talking and i'm really really happy for having these progressive people um in that in that category that believed in the change of the industry and then now since since a year now since February um, last year, we are actually in all of the major stores at Coop where they actually built in the fridge in the shelf for, for us, uh, place our products in there, works very well. And yeah, it's, it's fantastic, really how, great. How do you actually get them to that level where they say, we take up the upfront investment, we install the, the fridge for you. How do you get them to that point? Yeah, the, the great thing was really that they agreed on a, a pilot phase where they gave us five stores um, throughout Switzerland where we had to we had to actually 
place the first fridges. So we paid for them. Uh, we placed them were smaller fridges than the ones that we have now in in the stores, and um, to really find out what works and what does not. And we saw exactly what works. We also saw what does not work. And in the end, we said, okay, now we have this pilot phase done. Um, let's focus on what works and go big. And that's uh, yeah. It's I think now thinking of it. I think it was a very bold move from them because usually they would not um, do something that is so different from their main business. And for us, it was a real challenge, also for them, of course, um, but really happy that we did it because it it puts us really on the map. It gives Coop or every any retailer that we work with the uh, possibility to position themselves in this, in this field and say, look... Uh, Dear customers, we are the ones that um, we are the ones that that believe in the future on on, on good products and and it also helps to um, to attract a different kind of consumer as well. The ones that would not buy online because for any reason because they would not I don't know would not trust what what is what you can find on Instagram or whatever. Um, and it's it's for us it's really it's a great great opportunity. What did you have to pay special attention to when launching that pilot? Were you able to also select the the right locations where you saw the biggest potential? Or how do you actually do that? Because that's a very fragile phase, basically, because that can either make your break in terms of getting listed at COP. Absolutely, that's true. Um, no, we were not able to, to, to choose uh, which stores we would go into. It was really more of a where do we have stores where this would fit uh, but fit I mean in a, from a physical point of view it, where do we have shelves that are uh, big enough for a fridge or whatever that was really the issue um, so we had to make it work in those stores and we can see you can see differences between the stores really big differences uh, you can see that um, urban semi-urban stores work a lot better than very rural stores I think that's something that is probably uh, every new product has this in common because probably people that live in cities are um, usually more open to to new things. I don't know. Um, yeah. What what else was important in that regard? I mean, you also had to get some data, right, about how many uh, products were actually sold. Maybe also do some changes or adaptions as you go throughout the pilot. Was there any anything that you changed or adapted during the pilot phase, or that you? specifically and learned and took away from it yeah for example one big learning was um when i spoke before about the carrot puree that we had we also had that in cope once but um it did not work out it it was just probably too simple from a recipe point of view that parents would say well why would i want to buy this uh, it's uh, i can do this myself but uh red beet lentil and pear puree I probably will not do myself. So that that was a big learning that uh, recipes need some sort of uh, of of complexity for for people to see value in it. That's why we actually also then um, discontinued that that one recipe, that uh, that carrot recipe. Makes sense. And I also wonder how do then these deals work? You know, after the successful pilot, once you actually roll that out, does Coop buy from you directly as a reseller basically and uh, they pay you directly or are you also facing a certain upside risk there and upside potential at the same time or how do these deals work after yeah. you get no, to it's, the i think it's very traditional um so they uh, they order products we ship them they pay them 
they sell them. Okay, very simple. <laughs> very simple, very straightforward. I mean, that's always that's the beauty about our business. It's not very complicated to explain to investors also. Right. It's, <laughs> we produce things and people buy it. N no complex business model. <laughs> no recurring revenue or... Oh, well, we do have a recurring re revenue, actually. True. Yeah, but uh, no complex third-party marketplace uh, right. and so on. I don't know. Makes sense. Before we continue with the show, we would like to introduce you to our new partner, Nuco. Nuco helps founders navigate the paperwork that starting a company involves. From the first consultation all the way to the commercial register, Nuco has helped more than 900 entrepreneurs start their company, and they do so at highly competitive prices. To find out more, visit nuco.ch slash Swisspreneur. Again, that's nuco.ch slash Swisspreneur. And now, on with the show. And I wonder, you know, you, you mentioned your direct channel that you built before going to the retailer. So in what way has this also, that also helped you with the negotiations with uh, Coop, for example? I think it was very beneficial because A, um, we knew where our customers live. So that's something that we, we were able to show to retail. Like, look, guys, those would be the areas where it would make sense. Nice. And B, we understood what people actually want or what what moms and dads want because uh, they would give us feedback so we knew that for example uh, product a works better than product b and in the end it's always shelf uh, shelf facing or shelf uh, space is very limited and it is a huge difference if you have uh, one product uh, three times in a shelf that works very well or another one that have do you have three times in a shelf that does not work very well and you need to know which products you have to place Makes sense. Let's also talk about some challenges that you faced along the Yamo journey so yeah. far. So baby food is pretty much one of the most regulated food categories in yeah. Switzerland. I can imagine this also, you know, pushes a lot on, of pressure and additional challenges on you. So how do you actually deal with that? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm very happy or let's say I'm very also, um, I'm lucky that I have a co-founder that is a food scientist and that is really grinding it hard when it comes to quality standards. I mean, Jose is a machine when it comes to that and he knows exactly what is allowed and what is not allowed. And he always goes like, he's like the, the gatekeeper of the company when it comes to those things. So it was, I think it, especially in the beginning, it was really tough to understand what are all those regulations. Uh, we, I remember that we uh, had a lot of talks with experts in, in different fields from Jose's university and other people. And sometimes two experts were not, uh, they had different opinions and it was really difficult. And especially in the beginning, you just, you're not really sure and you just don't want to mess up because we always knew if we mess up with anything quality related, we're done. Um, so uh, that was always like this, a bit of the Damocles sword. Um, however, now, of course, things are really in place and we, we have a quality uh, management team and so on. So that's not of an issue anymore. It's, it's something that is uh, something that we need to really be careful about, something that we invest a lot into, but it's not this big unknown anymore. Got it. We also talked about that before. You sourced locally from Switzerland in the, in the early days, yeah. but then eventually you switched to also, uh, you know, ingredients from abroad, basically. 
how and why did you actually decide to take that step? Because that's also a big challenge that you had to overcome, I can imagine. Yeah, that's true. I mean, um, in the beginning, we were really proud, actually, that we were able to source from Switzerland. And um, what was interesting is that it was not something that the customers really cared about, which surprised me a lot. But um, we did all this, this research about what is important for people. And for example, that you source organic product produce is super important. That your product tastes very well, super important. Nutritional value, super important. Swiss made, mm, not so important. If we would produce meat, it would be very important. But the rest of the things that we buy, what is really from Switzerland? Not that much, actually. So, yeah, of course, uh, dairy, meat, but then the rest, uh, not much. So that was, I think it was for us a bit of an epiphany. We're like, okay, uh, interesting. And then, but we actually ran more into an issue because we had our volumes grew and grew and grew and we were not able to always have um, the materials that we wanted from Switzerland. So we, st we, we had to, in the beginning, we just had to add some more products from, from, for example, from Italy or from Spain then we had to take away the Swiss uh, logo from our products because we were, we were not able to withheld this uh, Swiss rules anymore. Mm -hmm. And then all this, those challenges started and in the end we ended like, okay, we we have to ditch it at all because we cannot, it is just, we cannot work like this. Right. Did you have any data points about how you went about testing that, that Swiss product versus uh, products from abroad or ingredients from abroad. Yeah, yeah we, we did all of those studies uh, just um, with quantitative online, with surveys. Uh, there's something, we, we are really numbers driven. We are data driven. We want to understand why things happen and uh, not just do things. Of course, sometimes you just have to do things without knowing anything. Right. But um, I think now we are at the point where we, we have a lot of data and we can understand a lot. We just have to, yeah, we just have to do it. Makes sense. And we also talked about that in the uh, intro, basically. You three co-founders, all male, without any kids themselves. <laughs> That's also a challenge per se, because just story-wise, people are probably going to ask more questions about why are these guys exactly doing that? It's yeah. not really, you know, the great story that you would say, I had my own kids, then that was a problem that I ran into, so I solved it. So was that also a, a challenge that you faced along the journey so far? Um, yeah, it was something that was raised uh, some, some more. Yeah, it was raised in the beginning, I would say. People were like, ah, oh, but are you actually, would people believe this story? Why would you do that? And and now I would say it really helped us because it was not this traditional, very common story of the mom that faced the challenge and then founded the company. Because that's something that yeah, everybody would expect, basically. Right. Now it's really different. And I think different is sometimes also good. Um, and I think what was really good is that us not being dads allowed us to really think different and to have a total outside perspective because we had to learn everything ourselves. No, we had no bias at all. So we had to do the interviews. We had to understand what the pain points are and we had to look from from the outside. And that, I think, still today is very important because we now are really about to transform the company into a holistic, into a baby, uh, sorry, into a, a children food company 
where baby food is an is an entry but we will um uh, we have already now come up with with new products that are for kids so i think that's only possible because we we can always rethink things and and look from it from the outside and i'm sure that there are also competitors that basically are your opponents to a certain degree <laughs> that are not that happy about that outside perspective that you are able to take so you've previously mentioned that homemade baby baby food is basically your biggest competitor but what about the other companies the international competitors like little uh, like hip for example or mia ben and yummy and so on how do you deal with those competitors do do they even affect you to a, a certain degree um so well I would say yes, they do affect us because we have to we have to be cautious and and we have to see what they do. But Luca always puts it that way: if you are running and you're in a in a sprint or in a marathon and you're number one and you're running, and when you always look back, then you probably will be overtaken at some point because you cannot concentrate on running. So. Um, Yes, I would say we put a pair of eyes in our in the back of our head as well. But no, no, seriously, it's it's really refocus on ourselves, and we just we I think we know where we want to go. Um, we know we have a very clear vision of what we want to build, and um, with that in mind, it's it's yeah, it's about focusing on the customers and and um, and thinking of the future. I like that approach because I think you can get you can really drive yourself crazy by looking left and right and yeah. think about what the competitors do and then completely forget about your own business. Yeah, I, I fully agree. Yeah. Nevertheless, um, Hip had made some moves to uh, sort of annoy you to a certain degree. Can yeah. you talk a bit more about what happened there? Yeah. So um, yeah, that was it was an interesting story. I mean. People told us in the beginning that, look, once you will go to Germany, uh, things might become rougher because it's just a different competition. Switzerland, we are nice people and uh, look, Germany, it will be tougher. And it actually, yeah, it, it turned out to be true. I mean, we there was a time, I think, in, in 2018 where we basically every week or every two weeks, we received another uh, warning, like an Abmahnung from, from HIP for different things uh, mostly advertising related really like things I would would have never considered that we would get like an, a, a legal letter for I mean we for example we had this one Instagram ad where we said um, uh, wait, what was it, it was by herkömmlicher Babynahrung wundert es nicht dass Kinder lieber am Daumen nucken so with with uh, traditional baby food uh, no wonder kids would rather suck on their thumbs uh, and it I mean we found it was was funny and we did not mention anyone right um, now unfortunately um, yeah hip was was very did not like that um, so they sent us this warning like saying hey we are number one and uh, I mean they are they are the biggest in the market 60-70% market share I think in almost all the markets that they're in and um, then uh, we were like okay that's that's a weird turn of events and that kept on going for a couple of weeks and so the, the warning stacked and we had I think all in all six, seven something like that and uh, in the beginning it was funny and then not so funny anymore because it was really kind of 
putting a lot of pressure on us and uh, also we were like okay what does this mean because we we had to pay the lawyers of course to to fight this or sometimes give in because we we just decide okay well if if it's just about not saying this sentence anymore i mean we can live without it right i just to this point i still don't understand this um uh, this behavior i don't understand this 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 mindset uh, because as as before i would say if everybody just focuses on themselves we would all be better off i i don't know it's 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 a weird because i i don't have this mindset exactly and so these legal warnings they they stacked but then eventually hip also got one step further right so they actually sued you they actually sued us um that was that was really that was then like the the peak of the whole thing we got this uh, lawsuit where they sued um our german company our our german entity that we have to to sell in germany and um, they not just sued the german entity but also jose and me privately because we were the two um directors of that company and they sued us privately uh saying that um the technology that we use would not be legal basically they or yeah it's put it simple it would not be legal we would not be allowed to use that technology hpp and uh that was weird for us because uh, there are ton of other companies using that technology especially also big companies like coca-cola and we were like okay if coca-cola does it i don't think that we are doing something wrong so um we fought this for one and a half years uh, it was super tough i even i was in court myself in in hamburg and uh, it was a so-so court meeting it started off bad and went then better i i'm really happy we have a super cool lawyer he's really good and uh he's also uh yeah he's really smart and understands food law a lot he's even in i think he is in some sort of commissions when it comes to to food law in in the european union and so on and he was from the beginning on he was like guys uh, there there's actually no way that that you could lose this but I mean, there's always a way, but true. Um, now, in the end, turns out uh, we actually won that lawsuit, and uh, that was for us a huge relief uh, because, in the end, the, the 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 court ruled totally in favor of us, and they said no, there is no substantiation whatsoever that what what you do is not legal. A real big relief because we would have been um, we would have been prohibited or it would have been illegal for us to sell our products in Germany as of the day when when we would have lost the case right. so the the, uh, the danger was quite big for us um, and I also did not want to go to jail by the way <laughs> oh no surprise <laughs> <laughs> um, but but yeah I mean so uh, I'm really really happy and what actually happens if you win such a case in court? Do they then have to pay for your time and efforts that you had, or how how do you deal with that? No, actually, they just have to pay for for the, the court fees. Okay. Um, unfortunately, not for our lawyer fees. Uh, those we have to pay. Um, but yeah, then that's how it is. And um, it's it's great that after i would say such a long time of uncertainty and really this this um this pressure and this weight on the shoulders it's you feel really relieved the question for me is now really like how 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 does this go on because um 
will this now be habitus? So will this now be the new normal, so to say? Every month a new <laughs> yeah, suit. Because I could really, yeah, I, I was like, come on, guys, give me a break. Right. <laughs> and, you know, like going after the company in, in Germany, I mean, that's a, a tough fight. But then going after you personally, that's like the, the highest escalation level that you can choose. Yeah. So how do you actually deal with that on a personal level? Because that must have been these one and a half years. That's a very intense time. And although you know that you didn't do anything wrong, it still drags a lot of attention, if, if energy. So how did you actually deal with that on a, on a personal level? Um, yeah, good question. I think I was... I, I always wa was very optimistic and I was like, hey, if there are so many companies using that technology, why would it be illegal? But still, of course, there is always like this little thing in your head telling you, but you could lose, but you could right. lose. And and I really did not want to lose, but I also could not do anything to, to win because there was nothing I could do uh, besides just... Besides just hoping that that uh, their reason will prevail, and um, now it did. So let's see how how it goes from here. But what do you do in these situations? Do you constantly think about the case, like what if we actually lose? Or? No, no, and I, I'm not. I, I'm really. I'm somebody that uh, really focuses on the things that I can change myself. I never. Or at least I try to. It's I would say I never, not I never, but I try to not focus on things that I cannot um, change anything anyway, because it's it's just it doesn't it doesn't make sense. Got it. So let's talk a bit about uh, something that is uh, more supportive. Your supporters along the way <laughs> instead of just the opponents. If we go back way to the early days again, there you actually launched a crowdfunding campaign. Yeah. So why did you decide to go down that path and what did you actually learn from it? So this crowdfunding campaign thing was something that we never wanted to do, actually. Uh, <laughs> but we, Luca, Jose and me, we, we put in all the money that we had into the company when we founded the company. And then we lift off that money that we put into the company and we did everything in the company with that money. And at some point we were like, OK, uh, we're soon going to run out of money, but we need to do this first production. And then uh, a lot of people always told us, why don't you do a crowdfunding campaign? Why don't you do a crowdfunding campaign? And we were like, oh, come on, never going to work. I mean, we don't, we, we, we did not come up with a cool, crazy gadget or something that you could sell and people would say, like, oh, yeah, this new drone. We have baby food. I mean, who, who would buy this? And then I think the 1000 person would come to us like, come on, why don't you do a crowdfunding campaign? And we did, okay, now enough is enough we do this now <laughs> so uh, we called up the people from we make it and uh, it was super cool to talk to them they were really excited about it they were like yeah this is gonna work brilliant and it's a fantastic story free guys no kids that's exactly what 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 you will be able to sell so we did that and it worked like a charm i mean we we pre-sold product worth of fifty-two thousand francs within a month it was unbelievable for us back then and uh, really really cool and then we had the money to actually do that first production run. And the, I think the most important thing was that the crowdfunding campaign gave us the platform or this vehicle to promote Yamo, to promote us, to promote the idea. Um, but also was was for us very important to to prove that 
yeah, this, there are really people that uh, want to buy this product. Before that, we only did we only did interviews, but we did not sell anything. Mm-hmm. And there we, we sold something. And that was like, okay, well, maybe we can actually, maybe this can be a business. <laughs> right. So that's like the next level marketing test. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would say. I would say so. And if people would ask me now, uh, should I do a crowdfunding campaign? I would always tell them, look, yes to it, but it will be a lot of work. I mean, we worked, I think, two or three months almost full-time on that crowdfunding campaign wow. before it launched. It was a lot of work, um, but it was worth it. What did you spend the most time on during the crowdfunding campaign? Was it really like getting the, traction? The getting campaign the- planning, building up the community, um, really creating all that content, um, uh, trying to get in touch with media uh, and to, to get some, some clippings. And it, uh, yeah, that was really what we did. But I, I really like that approach because I think in a B2C market case in Switzerland, that could actually be a really great task where you have a good upside potential to really validate that to a yep. certain degree. But um, of course, two or three months are not nothing. And you also have to invest some money and time, but yeah. it's a limited downside. So you don't need to have big investor money to then roll out a B2C case exactly. and then it will eventually not work. It's yep. a, a nice little test to know. I fully agree. Hypothesis. I mean, we always uh, people would always tell us, um, yeah, just yeah, just create a landing page and then sell your products. Do some Facebook advertising, put in a right. hundred francs and sell it. And we were like, okay, but what will we sell? We don't have any products to sell. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, just write people. Yeah, you know, you will receive it in a couple of months. We're like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to put up a fake landing page and sell something that doesn't exist. That just uh, went against my ethics. And then other people were like, yeah, why don't you can just whip up some some products and sell it to them? Like, no, I need to have like real products, quality yeah. and so on. And then it's just not so simple. If we would have sold T-shirts, maybe easier. But I think that's what people often confuse about the lean startup testing, exactly. right? Exactly. So yeah. then you say you go out with half a, a done product or half a finished product that is not the, the quality standard that you want to have. Just go out there and sell it. And then people are actually frustrated because it's not living up to the expectations. Exactly. And then you completely ruined your brand. I, I'm, I'm fully, I mean, I really try to be still today, be very lean in, in certain areas. But I think when you have food, especially food for children, yeah. there's just, there is no way for lean. Exactly. <laughs> it's all or nothing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Although I think then if you go down the B2B path, then that might ev- eventually work where you then say we sell a product to get the financing done. Um, there, that's a completely different market. Yeah, but for B2C, that's a really nice setup. Yeah, I agree. You also mentioned that you lift off your own investment, basically, of the three co-founders. Yeah. How much salary did you actually actually pay yourself in the early days? Uh, zero. <laughs> so actually yeah. nothing. Yeah, we, uh, we had no salary for almost a year, I think. And then first salary, I think that we paid was, I can't recall, I think one and a half thousand francs, if I'm not mistaken. Talking about skin in the game. Yeah, yeah. But I think it was also for me, it was very important to do that, to really put my money where my mouth was. Uh, I never wanted to just raise a lot of money and then live the same way as I used to before. It did not feel right. I felt like I need to go through all of those months and years of really uh, scrappy startup to know how it's like and to kind of prove that um, I, I'm, I'm doing this for, for, the, for the company and not for myself. And yeah. Walk the talk, basically. Yeah, yeah. 
And then actually, if we fast forward a bit in July 2020, you scored a 10.1 million in Series A funding. And what were actually the, the investors that were m most involved in the project? I think you also had some great business angels that supported you early yeah. on. So how do you actually close that round? Who was behind it and how do you actually support you? Yeah, so we have a bunch of angels that supported us from all, yeah, not day one, but uh, from day one when we went commercial. Uh, for example, Mike, um, the, the founder of Doodle, or, or Nicola and Laurent and Dario, and th those guys were just uh, always such a big help. Um, not in a way that they would impose themselves upon us, like, uh, hey, do this, do that, but really being there if we needed something. And that was really cool. Still is today. Um, Nicola, for example, is in our board, and it's it's just... This guy has seen so much and he has built himself uh, companies and he knows what he's talking about. That's, again, walking the talk he, and that's what I really, really appreciate. Then later on, uh, institutional investors came on board. Um, first um, one was uh, Ringe Digital Ventures together with B2V and uh, David, the, the managing director from, from Ringe Digital Ventures, is our, also now in our board or already for, for, for two years, I think now. Fantastic guy, really super supportive as well. And um, yeah, I think with a case like ours, it's not super easy to um, to raise money in Switzerland, particularly. But even the more I'm, I'm happy that it, how it worked out up until now. Um, but now for our Series A, we, I mean, it's really great, but we also had to look outside of Switzerland because for a case like ours, it's... Uh, Funds are really limited in Switzerland, and I'm super glad that we then onboarded five season ventures from Paris. Like I would say, probably, yeah, best food VC in Europe because they just focus on this and do only that and really understand what it's about. And um, and that, they they let around, and uh, that really gives us now the the firepower. But also, I would say, we put us on the radar for for the next rounds. Because as one founder once told me, after the round is before the round. Exactly. And <laughs> since fundraising is one of my main um, my main tasks within Yamo, um, yeah, yeah, you're constantly raising. Absolutely. And if you just look at you know some stats, you've come a very long way yeah. over the past years. You have forty employees. You probably used tons of fruits and veggies to actually produce baby food. Yeah. You have a filled bank account to actually fuel your expansion. So what are your next plans? Where do you want to expand to? What markets do you have on the radar where you want to bring Yamo into the shelves? So um, up until recently, we were active in the three German-speaking European markets, Switzerland, Germany and Austria. We just now launched um, in Spain. So we got um, a nationwide listing at Carrefour Spain. It's the one of the biggest retailers in the world. And in, in Spain, they're also very, very big. And um, that is, yeah, it's, it's crazy, <laughs> really crazy. Um, something that a deal that came about before Christmas and then within three months, the team hustled like crazy to make it happen. And uh, that's really, I would say, the Yamo spirit, make something from nothing because we had nothing and we just uh, did everything that it takes to to go into that market. 
and we will most likely will launch uh, other markets as well in the next couple of months um we are working on some things it's always a bit yeah with with this whole corona pandemic situation it's sometimes a bit unforeseeable what what works and what does not so so let's see so you once said that yamo should become what innocent became to smoothies but just for the baby food market is that an objective that still stands um no 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 actually not because it's not just baby but children got it (laughs) so no that's really that that's our big topic of this year of uh, 2021 um so far we, we 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 started in baby food because it was it was so obvious that something needed to be changed um, we were able to show that we can produce a product that is really tasty and super nutritional and uh, and healthy and everything. But very early on, we realized that um, this can become so much bigger. The customers, our customers that we had, they, after a couple of months when they were our customers, they told us, look, um, I will stop now. Uh, I will cancel my subscription because my baby does not eat baby food anymore. It eats right. with me and my husband. Uh, but don't you have anything for my kid, like a good yogurt or a good snack, anything? And we're like, no, we don't. And uh, this happened so often that we were like, uh, okay, we need to come up with new products because people really like the brand. They, they love it. They like our philosophy. Why don't we apply this philosophy onto other categories and then actually last year we launched the very first product for children it's the yamo gurt it's it was europe's first um, oat milk based yogurt so it's um fully plant-based it's an organic yogurt made from oat milk super tasty um has uh, half or even a third of the sugar than uh, traditional children yogurt that's something that's very important to parents. Um, no added sugar, and uh, makes up for 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 twenty percent of our sales already now. So it works wow. really really well. And that's when we also decided to continue working on products like this. So we just now launched another product, the uh, the oat drinks. Uh, it's it's a drink, a flavored drink with uh, flavored with with uh, with mango or with the other one with choco, the choc Norris. <laughs> 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 and um, and now we launched those uh, for for children uh, because it's like uh, we we for us it's like this Pausenmilch 2.0. It's like the, the the milk that you have with in your school lunchbox. Uh, later this year we will add new products um, and want to really form Yamo into this leading brand of of healthy and especially tasty children food where where baby food is a brand entry but there is a lot more right. to come you're just getting started we're just getting started yeah crazy exactly. <laughs> but you know innocent was then eventually bought by coca-cola yeah so who can be your coca-cola further down the road any plans any ideas uh i don't know it's it's honestly it's not something that i really think about a lot i mean of course i need to think to some degree about it um, because we have venture capital investors and uh, there's only two ways how they get their money back. It's either if we go public or if uh, we we sell the company to whomever. So um, so I would say we have some sort of uh, the destiny somehow is, is, is clear. But on the flip side, Somebody once told me, and I think it was very wise words, if you want to build a very good company, you have to focus on the company and not on 
who buys it. Exactly. Um, and therefore, for us, main focus is first customers and then everything else. I mean, the potential exit will follow automatically if you build a, a great company, right? Potentially. People will be yeah. interested and then you will get the talks anyway instead of just focusing on that from day one. Yeah. Awesome. So before we wrap up the conversation, we also always ask our guests about their fa favorite gadgets and resources. So are there any blogs, books, podcasts, anything that comes to mind that you can recommend to our listeners? Oh, wow. I Yeah, I read all the traditional startup books. I think probably, yeah, it's, it's such a classic, but a hard thing about hard things is one of my all-time favorites. Really great book. I recently also um, um, read the, or listened to actually, the uh, high growth, uh, the how's it called? The high growth handbook, growth yep. from yeah, high growth handbook exactly from Elas Gill exactly. Yeah, yes. it was really good as well. Um, and besides that, I I, I I read a lot of different blogs, especially from venture capital investors from the US in consumer space. I always find them very analytical. It's very interesting when they, for example, look at cohorts from different uh, companies. That's something that where I learn a lot. Is there a particular one that you could recommend? Um, so one that I really like is um, from, I mean, it does not write that much anymore, but it was from Max Niederhofer, the, one of the partners of uh, Hardcore Capital. It's a very, very interesting blog that he, uh, that he used to write. Um, unfortunately, not so active anymore. But now they uh, they have this newsletter from um, from their fund that is also very good. And besides that, what else? Um, yeah, a lot of podcasts. The the, the digital compact and uh, online marketing rock stars. All the German ones. Uh, there's some very good ones. Of course, this Whisperer podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <Yeah. laughs> no, no. It's. I mean, I think it's very important to to build a Swiss ecosystem because I've. I'm a part, uh, a part from the, uh, uh, of the ecosystem for not that long now, and it feels like it has grown a lot, and that's Absolutely. really great. Yeah, nothing to add to that. <laughs> so the very last section for you today are some rapid fire questions. I either give you a selection of two or three different options, or uh, uh, an open question that you can answer in one or two sentences. Are you okay. ready? I'm ready. So for you, Lucerne, Zurich, or Souk? Uh, Lucerne. That's where you live. That's where I live. That's uh, where your heart is, I guess. Uh, my heart is in Basel. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so if you would have said Basel, it would have been with, uh, with, uh, without hesitating Basel. Okay, fair point. Where do you actually go to think? Um, I go just walking. I, I like walking around the city. Makes sense. Online retail or brick and mortar store, if you had to choose one of them? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, still offline because I like I like the smell and I like the, the things, but I think this will change in a couple of years. Yeah. How many hours do you actually sleep on average per night? A lot. I need my sleep. So seven hours is really like I target. Awesome. What are you most proud of in your life? Uh, most proud of? Um... I think I'm most proud of that that we at Yamo we somehow managed to build a culture where people are really happy, very ambitious, 
and it's just fun hanging out. That sounds like the perfect combination. Yeah, it's yeah, it does. <laughs> and the last one, sorry, I couldn't resist, but the last one for you, proud dad or child free? I had to ask. Uh, proud dad. Okay. Not so, yet, but not yet. Okay. Who knows? Who knows? Awesome. Hey, Tobias, that was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for sharing the Yama story, all the great stories and learnings. And we wish you all the best and lots of success and are just super thrilled and excited to follow your journey. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Sylvan, for the invitation. It was, uh, was really a pleasure. Now that you've finished listening to the episode, why not top it off with a quick rating on Apple Podcasts? It's one of the best things you can do to help us reach more entrepreneurs just like you.